0: I'd like to welcome you to class. Today is January 7th, 2024. Uh, I'm trying to figure out what happened to 2023. Uh, I don't know where it went, but that's what the calendar says. So we'll start lesson nine today on learning contentment part three. And there's quite a bit to cover today. Uh, If we don't get to it, then I'll see if we take the remainder and, and have a lesson of just that material, but it's my intention to cover today's material and then do one more class uh, covering some objections and one other thing that we need to be in the practice of contentment. So today's class and one more, but I will not be here next week, so it will be the following week when we have that class. So we're, we're looking at, right now, in this idea of contentment, how is it that we put it into practice? How do we learn contentment? And there was a Puritan, I don't think terribly well-known, Henry Wilkinson was his name, and it, it's a little confusing because I think there were three Henry Wilkinsons around this time. And I think, although I'm, I'm not sure on this, and I just got tired of thinking about it, um, I think there was a father and son, Henry Wilkinson, in the Westminster Assembly. Uh, and we'll call this one, this dude, uh, I think died in 1690 or so, but he, he wrote this book on contentment and uh, it, it hasn't been, hasn't been updated. It's, it's only in its, that I could find only in its form. that it was published in the 1600s. But he has uh, five characteristics that I thought were well worth our time uh, in looking at this class. uh, Five characteristics of how we go about acquiring contentment. So the first one is a contented person makes it his business to bring his mind suitable to his means. And number two, he's a person thankful for everything and everything that he has. Three, he strives and endeavors against coveting those things which are not his own. Four, he enjoys himself cheerfully and goes on contentedly and quietly in the management of the works of his calling. And five, above all, he labors to make God his portion. So we're not going to look at each of these with the same level of detail, uh, but I, I want to touch on each of them this morning and spend a particular amount of time on a couple of these. So the first... Duty that he brings to mind, or the first duty that he recommends is uh, bringing something to mind. A, a contented person makes it his business to bring his mind suitable to his means. And he has this—he has this quote uh, in describing this direction that that it is our obliged duty which concerns us all to labor after a contented mind and to acquiesce and rest satisfied with the present condition and station wherein God is pleased to set us in the present world. And that's actually, there's a lot in that statement of his. And he describes it as we are obliged. That's the first thing. It's something that is commanded for us to do to, first of all, labor after a contented mind. Contented mind is not something that happens to you. It's something you acquire, something you learn and something you pursue. But it's not a passive endeavor. You have to be in the practice of looking for it finding it and keeping it. So it's an obligation to labor after a contented mind. And the obligation, uh, here we find this union of ideas of desire, for instance. Uh, You have to desire a contented mind. It has to be something that's important to you, that you think, yeah, this is something I would like. So from this desire springs action, and that action is to decide to go labor after it. And then where is the first battle fought? Well, after the desire is planted then the mind is engaged, the will is engaged to direct the mind. And so we already see in just this, these opening words the union between desire, will, and action, and then going back to having a, the mind direct the heart and such. But one of the things this contented mind does is to learn to acquiesce in our present condition. So why would we acquiesce to it? Well, because we're meekly submitting to our present condition. We're acknowledging that this present condition was imposed upon us. The time of your birth was imposed upon you. Uh, Many things are imposed upon you. And so you should acquiesce in these things. It was the whole point of that section on meekness, is that there is a great deal of your life that is imposed upon you. Acquiesce. Don't fight it. But then the third one is not just acquiescing in a passive sense, like I'll quit fighting, right? So there's two perspectives. You can, you can make someone yield, right? Anybody who's had a little brother knows how to make them yield. That's what little brothers are designed to do, to typify yielding. Now, I feel sorry. Rachel, I don't know how to explain this to you in other terms, right? I'm sure sisters don't make each other yield, but little brothers are made to be yielding. And so, acquiescing is a little more yielding, but Wilkinson brings it a little more forcefully here, and he says it's our duty to rest satisfied in that condition. We're not here to simply be pinned by the strong arm of the Lord. No, we're here to rest and to be satisfied, and partly why we're satisfied is we realize that God is pleased to set us in this condition. We're not We're not resting simply because somebody much bigger than us put us in our place. We're acknowledging the truthfulness of the scriptures that God is designing our circumstances as he thinks best suits us. This is an important idea here. So being content requires the desire to be content, the will to begin pursuing contentment, the effort to labor after a contented mind and then to acquiesce in these conditions and to rest satisfied to actually derive happiness from the condition that we find ourselves in. So we're not going to spend a great deal of time on on each of these particulars because we've covered them in other areas. But to remind ourselves that we have this obligation given to us in this passage, for instance, from Hebrews, Hebrews 13, 5, let your conduct be without covetousness. So remove an element of things from you and be content. It's a positive injunction. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So one of the things that we can conclude from this is that you have the ability to decide whether or not you want to be content. If you're discontented, one of the problems may be you don't really want to be contented. And that's the point Henry Wilkinson's making, that you need to decide that contentment is an important enough benefit that you're going to pursue it. And you'll do it because God commands you to do it. He tells you to be content with such things as you have and to put covetousness away. So it's not just a matter of accepting and yielding to your circumstances, but desiring that this is what I want for my life. I want my life to be marked with contentment. So we're going to touch on it for just a moment, but uh, I want to address two objections that often spring from a discussion of this imposition of our circumstances upon us, and that is, it, it leads us to either being stoics or uh, fatalist. Now, part of the problem with Stoicism, um, and, well, really even fatalism, but Stoicism has a different meaning whether we're talking about popular usage versus uh, a system of philosophy. And we're not talking about the system of philosophy, but we are talking about the um, popular usage. We're going to look at it again in just a minute, but just to briefly introduce it. Uh, it's In today's mind, Stoicism is the endurance of pain or hardship, or or really even with a pleasure, without this, the display of feelings and without complaint. That's typically how people tend to think about stoicism today. You need to, it's an endurance test. You need to endure these hardships put upon you. Well, there's certainly Endurance is, and stamina are characteristics of the Christian life. I mean, oftentimes hardship comes our way, and we do have to endure these things. But it's the part about enduring it with the, without a display of feelings and without a display of complaint. So we spend a great deal of time on murmuring. So We don't want to complain that way. And we don't want to uh, have it without feeling. That doesn't do us any good. So we're not dispassionate about the hardships that get imposed upon us oftentimes. And we're not fatalist at the same way. We're not fatalist in that we believe these things are just happening because it was predetermined to happen without acknowledging who might have been the one determining what should happen. The great great problem in fatalism is not that events have been prescribed, but it's the lack of acknowledging who's the one prescribing them. I believe that God has prescribed the course of my life, but I believe it was God and not some impersonal, something, the fates. The fates didn't prescribe anything, but God prescribed things for me. Why did he do that? Well, that's how we refer as we we discussed the states of mind that we consciously decide to emulate. The regenerate mind says, I'm going to submit myself to God's word and to his revealed will as demonstrated by providence. And what does God's word say? That he loves us, he cares for us, we're the pinnacle of his creation, and he's watching over us, and he's organizing our life in a certain way. Well, that's a good 40 miles south of whatever the fatalist is saying. So the fatalist has no relationship to providence. Those are not the same things. So we're not talking about in-person Uh, or being impersonal or being cold or being detached or distant. What we're saying is that God is crafting things and he's crafting them for a purpose. So stoicism and fatalism, and I'll say something else about them in just a minute, are not the description of what's being depicted from Wilkinson's uh, advice on being content. His second instruction is to remind us that we should be thankful for anything. And for everything. So he. I, I hope gratitude is so um, self-evident. We need not spend a great deal of time on this. But it's worth noting gratitude is a skill that has to be cultivated. So uh, not wanting to actually add to God's word, but in, or thou shalt be grateful, was the 11th commandment in our house. And it was a capital crime for a violation, you've got to teach children. Many people need to be taught that gratitude is important. And he reminds us um, in 1 Thessalonians 5, Rejoice, always pray without ceasing in everything. What do you mean by everything? But in all sets of circumstances you might encounter in everything, give thanks. Why? Well, it's the will of God in Christ Jesus for you to be grateful in all your circumstances. Gratitude is also a skill that you have to decide to embark upon. The third instruction tells us that we should strive and endeavor against coveting those things which are not his own. And we didn't didn't look in this class uh, at the larger catechism, but there are some really helpful things in there about uh, contentment. And we see in... Question uh, 147, um, what are the duties required in the 10th commandment, uh, which is dealing with uh, covetousness? The duties required in the 10th commandment are such a full contentment with our own condition. Wow, that's not contentment. Why did they modify that word? They modified it. It's a full contentment. I'm, I'm not just a little happy. But the Tenth Commandment requires me to be abundantly or fully happy with our own condition. And this is the part I think is really helpful. In such a charitable frame of the whole soul toward our neighbor, as that all our inward motions and affections touching him tend unto and further all that good which is his. If you want to grow in contentment, one of the things that helps is to remove your coveting eye from your neighbor and from other people's circumstances. So you can, you can increase the fullness of your contentment if you just quit looking at what everybody else has, looking at their circumstances, either envying those circumstances or desiring those circumstances for yourself. You can't bring your neighbor down and make yourself happy with the difference. It doesn't work that way. And so this expression of contentment that we see in the catechism is, is really important. And then in question 148, uh, yeah, I have that on here. The, What are the sins forbidden in the Tenth Commandment? Well, the sins forbidden in the Tenth Commandment are discontentment with our own estate, envying and grieving at the good of our neighbor, together with all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. We find our hearts stirring toward things that are going on in our neighbor's life, but aren't going on in ours. What the catechism is instructing us is that that's wrong. Quiet your heart as it relates to the, God's provision for your neighbor. Don't let your heart be in a distemper. So the catechism has much more to say, uh, but that's all we're going to say here uh, as we move through these, these first three uh, pieces of advice. So I'll stop for a minute because I want to take I want to take some time on his fourth piece of advice, but we'll let you interject a word or a comment on the first three things that we've covered, Bruce.
1: It's often been said that when you pray for patience, that God will give you circumstances that teach you patience. (laughs) Uh, Do you uh, would you put this uh, prayer and endeavoring after contentment in a similar category?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it, contentment is not learned in a vacuum. That that contentment is not learned in a vacuum. And the way you learn contentment will be different than the way I learn contentment, just like patience is learned through. And, and I'm convinced uh, there have been objections noted in this class about Paul's acquisition of contentment was because he went to heaven. And, and we'll visit that yet one more time. <laughs> But Paul says he learned it. Well, how did he learn it? He learned it through all the variety of circumstances that he'd encountered in life. And each one presented a new aspect or a new perspective or something. And he could look back and say, I was content in this circumstance because I remembered what God was doing. And I found joy and happiness. I was able to be grateful. And I had new circumstances. So how do I apply what I learned to what's going on? And he learns it. And sometimes he abounds. Sometimes he's abased. And it's the process of life. It took him a while, but he learned it step by step, much the same way we learn patience. It's a, it's a good observation. Anything else? All right. Well, let's move to this fourth, uh, this fourth instruction. Uh, I think Wilkinson is really insightful here, uh, and he says some things that you think, oh yeah, that's right, but maybe are worth pondering just a little bit. His fourth instruction reads, he enjoys himself cheerfully and goes on contentedly and quietly in the management of the works of his calling. So I really, uh, I really appreciate this, the works of his calling. So Wilkinson is saying several things uh, about calling here. First of all, he enjoys himself enjoys himself cheerfully in his calling, and he goes about his callings with contentment and quietness as he manages the works of his calling. So, what was there to be happy about in the 1600s? (laughs) That's a fair question to ask, right? Um, Antibiotics, well, they didn't have those. Um, The internet, didn't have those. Books, that was tough. A, a rich and varied diet. No. Cheap Indian food? Nah. Curries? Nah. It was England. They didn't have good food. <laughs> right? They barely got good food now, right? It's taken a long time, right? There's all kinds of things. to You think back, and here's Wilkinson saying, enjoy the works of your calling. Okay. So it's already a bit of a stretch. But what does he mean by works of calling, especially managing the works of your calling? and? And I think one of the things he's after is to realize that the pursuit of contentment is not done in a vacuum. It's not done by just imagining that, well, God's doing things and I need to be happy about these things. That he's given you things to do and he wants you to be happy as you go out and about your your world. And one of the things that struck me is how important it is to be about fulfilling the creation mandate as a positive step in acquiring contentment. We're not trying to acquire contentment in a vacuum. You want to learn how to be content. Well, one of the things that you could do is start doing the things that God told you to do. What is it God told us to do? Well, I listed a few references here, and sometimes sometimes the ideas uh, in these verses and in some others are described as the as the uh, creation mandate uh, it, it can go by other names but how about marriage how about procreation and the raising of children how about labor itself subduing the earth and all of its creatures the sabbath these are all things that we can be busy about and you think well okay so you've given me something to do to keep me busy so are you just trying to keep me busy so I don't have to think about my miserable condition. And, and I think that's often the way contentment is depicted, is that contentment is measured by how we can learn to abate our desires. And what, what Wilkinson is describing for us is how to find fulfillment in the management of your callings so that you can walk around enjoying things cheerfully. And that's not a small task. So all of these things that are mentioned, it's, it's worth spending a little time thinking about this. They were all created where? In a garden where things were plentiful, things were rich, things were varied, things were good, where there was no sin. They all existed prior to the fall. They're all still binding on us today. The fall didn't eradicate any of these ideas of these, these four items. They're all important. They all give a solid direction for our life. But I think you can ask the question, why is there a creation mandate? Are are we talking about we as human beings created in God's image are designed to just lay on the ground and somehow be happy in some sort of ethereal or spiritual way? Is that what contentment is like? And it's not what contentment is like. God designed men to be able to do certain things, and he designed them that they would also not only find purpose and find them fulfilling, but they would find happiness in doing those things. As a rule, we're not saying every person, applies in every way to the same degree, but as a rule, God wants you to get married, to create families, wants you to labor, he wants you to help subdue the earth, and he wants you to enjoy the Sabbath. And why does he do that? Why are these things given to us? It wasn't just to keep us busy until we could get to heaven. That's not the point. The point is he wants us to do it because he wants us to be happy. He wants us to be satisfied. And he wants us to be contented. And one of the ideas that hit me is I thought about this idea of satisfaction happiness and enjoyment is that there is no tension in these ideas between creation becoming idolatrous and god's design for our happiness remember they were all given in the garden it wasn't that adam was going to walk off to the south 40 and he was going to find himself so delighted by the daffodils that he would turn them into an idol what if adam had successfully progressed through his probationary period what would have happened he would have gone to the south 40 and looked at the daffodils and what would he have found happiness would it have been an idol for him no so why do the daffodils bring us happiness we're going to look at that in just a moment but it's an underappreciated element on how desirous God is for our satisfaction and contentment and happiness to be found in the management of our calling. So I'm going to read a, I'm going to read a couple of extended quotes from uh, John Murray in his book on principles of conduct as he looks at the creation mandate. He has a couple of interesting ideas. And I'm only giving you the, the money portion of the quote uh, up here, but I'm going to read the extended section that why did God give us these tasks to do? They're not arbitrary, and it's, it's, they're not akin to giving a kid a cookie and a coloring book to just keep him busy for a little bit until dinner, right? And if that's subtly the idea you have, that marriage and work and labor and subduing the earth and the Sabbath are just the equivalent of giving a kid a cookie and a coloring book until we get to heaven, you're missing the big point. You're missing a great deal of satisfaction. So here's Murray. He writes, The nature of man is richly diversified. He doesn't describe the nature of creation being diversified. He starts with the nature of man being diversified. And that means you and I are not alike. There is not only a diversity, a basic need, but there is a profuse variety of taste an interest, of aptitude, and endowment of desires to be satisfied and of pleasures to be gratified. When we consider the manifold ways in which the earth is fashioned and equipped to meet and gratify the diverse nature and endowments of man, we can catch a glimpse of the vastness and variety of the task involved in subduing the earth, a task directed to the end of developing man's nature gifts, interest, and powers of engagement with the resources deposited by God in the earth and the sea. We must also take into account that the earth, untouched by the curse and, uh, and the sea, wait a minute, I'm sorry, uh, untouched by the curse and the travail resulting from it, would have been perfectly congruous with the nature and endowments of man, uncontaminated by sin and defilement, and unhampered by the liabilities of sin's curse. There was nothing wrong with what God created as a long-term plan to provide people happiness and contentment. And the earth itself was so rich and diverse in resources and problems to be solved that it was matched by the diversity of individuals in their talents and desires to go solve those problems. The whole thing was created to make you happy. The whole thing was created to bring you delight and satisfaction that's kind of amazing to think about and none of that has been abrogated none of that's been changed so by accepting our various qual- our, our, uh, callings we are participating in the, in the various activities that God has designed to bring gratification to us so these things are they're designed to be deep in their gratification in some sort of fundamental way. And you, I think it's fair to say that God has the creation mandate in place because you don't know what will make you happy, but God does. And he knows how he made you. And so if you'll do these things, you'll take long strides in the walk toward being content. So Murray again writes, the chief incentive in subduing the earth and the chief end to be promoted by it would have been the discovery and exhibition of the manifold wisdom and power of God. So you see, even early on, there's this design intent that what you see and experience through the calling that would have been given to Adam and Eve, through the raising of children, the subduing of the earth, the creatures, all these things, you would have discovered the nature and manifold wisdom of God. So it wasn't those daffodils on the back. I don't know why I picked daffodils. I don't know why they're on the back 40. But it's not the daffodils on the back 40 that are the great end of things. They are the means by which we discover the wisdom, the nature, the creativity, and the glory of God. God gave us a means to discover himself. And our callings are the means by which we do those things. He writes, How incomparably more intriguing and defeatlessly rewarding would have been the sinless man when at every step of his path and in every quest, a detail of progressive understanding, the marvels of the creator's wisdom, power, goodness, righteousness, and loving kindness would have broken in upon his heart and mind. and every new discovery, every additional conquest would have given cause afresh for the adoration whereby he says, O Lord, how manifold are thy works. In wisdom thou hast made them all. The earth is full of his riches, quoting Psalm 104. So the whole point that Murray is bringing is that the existence of man in an undefiled state would have enabled him to experience God through the practice of his callings. And none of that has been abrogated. So one glorious step toward the practice of contentment is to learn to enjoy your callings, to learn to enjoy the work of your hands, to learn to enjoy marriage, to learn to enjoy raising children, to learn to enjoy the Sabbath, to learn to enjoy all these things. Now, we are on this side of Eden Right There was an angel keeping guard over that garden there 's no back forty that we can visit anymore. Things are different now, but they 're not different in design, right The design hasn 't changed you can't It would be difficult to argue God does not want people to get married, find happiness. He doesn 't want people to find fulfilling in their calling you 're not going to argue that I hope you 're not going to argue for the abrogation of the Sabbath or abrogation of of uh, investigating the earth. But now we have the problem of disordered desires and thorns and thistles. That everything has become remarkably harder. We live in a fallen world and nothing is going to alter that fact. We cannot go back. However, we can make the task easier. And we should say with Wilkinson, I intend to enjoy myself cheerfully in the management of the works of my calling. And thereby get contentment. Well, are there any objections to that idea? Yeah, I'm paraphrasing Wilkinson by saying, I intend to enjoy myself cheerfully in the management of the works of my calling. This combines this idea that a man must make the decision and labor. To be content? And to labor and be content? Doing what? So there are lots of different ways we can go about achieving contentment and the way you achieve it will look different than the way your neighbor achieves it. We're not going to all do the same thing. We're all going to do something different. Thoughts and comments?
1: There's a strong uh, temptation to look, you said this earlier, to look at other people's calling. I was thinking of the parable of the talents, right? Well, he got five talents. I only got two. And I have a problem with, well, how come I'm not called to manage that? I'm called to manage this. Uh, there's a lot of contempt today thrown on um, the raising of children sure, and the keeping them home uh, as if, like, that's down here but some great career or building skyscrapers or discovering new quantum new aspects of quantum physics or something is that's so much greater than this it's the same sort of ending
0: i think one of murray's powerful insights that took me a while to figure out is we think about the complexity of the world and i'm amazed regularly about things of the world that just seem incomprehensibly dense to understand. And we've made lots of progress. There's lots more to be done. Uh, But this idea that God created people with a profound diversity of talents and interest in insights, that he intends to make them content through a completely different avenue than making me content, and that the complexity of the world is rivaled by the complexity of us. That God created people with an unimaginable diversity to go do what? To do the earth. To raise kids, get married. So, um, we have lots of warnings about things. You know, don't, don't turn your spouse, don't, don't turn your marriage into something idolatrous. Don't idolatize your spouse. I, I think we're selling the happiness portion way short. You're not even close to getting enough happiness out of your marriage. Why? Why isn't that extolled as the virtue? Coming right out of Genesis, God wants you to be indescribably happy. Through what? Your spouse. I am. What about your kids? Mostly. We'll leave, we'll leave the unnamed ones, right? Right. (laughs) What about your calling? Well, I don't know. We take big boards and we cut them into little boards and we nail them together. I don't know. There's nothing glorious about it, but there is. If you think about it, I I still marvel at the manufacturing of beef jerky. I can't get over it. It's just amazing. God intends for you to be happy through the investigation of all kinds of things, your your days were not designed to be spent toiling away endlessly in unhappiness. The end result, the the end item of this contentment is satisfaction in God. That can only come when your mind is predisposed to find it. But if you don't have a mind that's willing to look for it, you're not going to find it. You're not going to stumble on it. You're going to walk around it on the on the far south side.
1: Well, I appreciate the reminder that God made the world for us to be uh, to enjoy it. That's right. And, that He said, our contentment ultimately comes from God, but that doesn't mean our contentment only comes from doing spiritual things. Exactly. We're happy when God blesses us in our work, or in our recreation, or our, our worldly pursuits. That's because those aren't spiritually themed, doesn't I mean, can't enjoy them. Because I've at times felt guilty because I enjoy something that is worldly, or it's not necessarily, I'm not evangelizing with this, and I'm, I'm blessed with this while other people are out suffering and persecuted for their faith. And, but, it. God made this world for us to enjoy
0: you're exactly right and one of the dangers we I mentioned this once before uh, but it's worth repeating that one of the dangers in reading much of the material on contentment is it tends to focus on the disordered desires we have and the need to bring into alignment our Um, our desires with our present condition, and all those books were written during times of affliction. And yet, here's Wilkinson saying, you should enjoy the management of your callings, the day-to-day work. I'm at a complete loss to imagine anybody being happy in the 1600s. How would you be happy? And here they were. The Pastor Wilkinson, if we want to call him that, observing people and observing the scriptures, writes these things. And and they had the, the marvelous insight for us, and this is what Murray's getting at, is if you can't be happy in this present world, maybe it's because you can't be happy thinking about the manifold wisdom of God on display in your own soul and in your surroundings. It's not your, it's not your callings that are unimaginative, it's you. That's unimaginative. God himself, as manifested through this world, doesn't bring you any delight. Remember, there was no threat, no threat whatsoever, that Adam and Eve and his posterity, after having gone through their probationary period, that they would have turned creation into idolatry. And yet, it would appear that God intended the world to exist, for a very long time with people exploring and creating and wondering and building and raising families that was exactly what he intended to do but it would have been without sin where's the problem it's all still there the happiness we find is not in our circumstances the happiness is in the delight of understanding God in our circumstances. That's what we're after. I think it's also important not to forget that in his book, he said he intends to be, there's an intention and a willingness and a choosing. Absolutely. am sure he had a lot of struggles. from he intended to That's right. Yeah. Yeah. He he made his mind to that disposition.
1: Yeah. Just piggyback on that. There's a fixation on the. I've seen this a lot of. On on that one thing you're supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to. Who is the one? that I'm supposed to marry the one or the school I'm supposed to go to or the job I'm supposed to get. That can be real tricky for those, especially young people. But I think it's all of us. We're seeking out their calling and and they're kind of thinking about, well, I I have to discern God's will. I'm praying that he will lead me to the decision, the one. And I think it may really be a, a risk to miss the point I mean, you need to be discerning about who you marry and where you go to school and all, or whatever things. I'm not saying it doesn't matter at all. It may not matter nearly as much as you think if you just intend to work as unto him in whatever. Like when we studied that book, just do something. Or like, just kind of be discerning, but then just get after it and be and intend to be happy and content whichever path it is. God will direct you down that path.
0: What if people... Or to look at us and say, they may be achieving peak happiness over there at SRPC. I've never seen such a happier group of people. What are they happy about? Look at them, right? Uh, is, that, is, is that the vibe you give off in your life? Is that the vibe you communicate? Is that, is that the part of the brochure that's in small letters? Uh, you, know, you, can, you can make it through. Don't forget, they're thorns and thistles. They're disordered desires. Uh, you may want things that you could never possibly hope to achieve, right? I mean, that's that's just that's the way it is. Uh, but that's okay. That's the world we inhabit. And that, that idea that we can discover the manifold wisdom and the glory of God, and what he included is righteousness, his goodness, all those things are included. You can see all of that in life if you have eyes to look. What are their comments?
1: That happiness in fulfilling your calling is because you're doing what God created you to do. And you will, your happiness increases as you uh, learn more about God in your calling. Call.
0: It does, yeah. It's, it's, it's a... Adam and Eve did not know anything about Uranium-238. And for the record, I don't know anything about Uranium-238 either. I don't know anything about daffodils. I don't even know if I could recognize a daffodil. But it was meant to be discovered. And Adam may not have been the right person to discover those things, or to name those things. Somebody else had to do all that. It's... Somebody had to learn it. But did that process of learning was it nothing but toil? Was it all just tiresome? Was it a burden? Or were you discovering the glory of God through these things? His creation. Through the his diversity. creation? Right. Yeah. Well, we didn't get but half the material we had for today, so we may extend the class, uh, because there are some certain things I, I want to cover about it, common objections, uh, but if there aren't any other comments or statements.